Welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I took our show on the road to Changing Hands Bookstore in downtown Phoenix, where we had a book signing and special author event with our very own Andrew Maynard and his brand new book, Films from the Future. So that's what you're going to hear is our live event at Changing Hands with a really great crowd of folks from downtown Phoenix. There's a little bit of sound issue at the end of the episode where people ask questions. Uh, We tried to repeat the questions so that you can hear it on this recording, but we didn't want to cut it out because the questions were really, really interesting. So I hope that you'll bear with us. Before we get started, as always, thank you for being here with us to listen to Future Out Loud. We would love it if you subscribe to Future Out Loud. If you're not already doing that, you can subscribe, of course, on the Apple uh, Podcast Store or Stitcher or Google Play or SoundCloud or wherever you get your fine podcasts. You can find all of our old episodes on our website at futureoutloud.org. You can tweet at us at Future Out Loud or find us on Facebook, although admittedly, we're not that active on Facebook uh, right now. Facebook is having some issues, Um, but as is, frankly, all of social media, different issue, different episode. Thank you for being here with us, and no further ado, on with Andrew Maynard and Films from the Future. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Heather. And hello, Changing Hands Bookstore here in Phoenix, Arizona. Welcome, everybody. We are here to talk tonight about, Andrew, you wrote a book. I wrote a book, yes. This is going to be lovely and awkward, seeing that you've got that pause between the microphone passing hands every now and again. But yes, I wrote a book, Films from the Future, the technology and morality of sci-fi movies. So, you know, just a little thing. So nobody's ever seen a sci-fi movie. It's a teeny little genre that nobody's ever heard of, of course. And we're talking about this really inconsequential topic of the entire future. And I read your book. I read it cover to cover, (laughs) as a matter of fact. And what I loved about your book is that you don't just talk about the movies. You do talk about the movies. And you talk about the actors and the writers and the directors because you really love movies. And I appreciate that. But you also talk about the real, actual, live world problems that we have and how can we, how can the movies help us with those? Yeah, so this is my little secret with the book. It's not really a book about science fiction movies. Actually, it is. is. There are 12 movies in there. Actually, there are 12 movies and two uh, bonus movies. But really, it it was an excuse to talk about technology and the future. So with each movie, I just use it as an excuse to see what are the really cool things that people were predicting in those movies, what are the really weird things that were happening in those movies, and what can that tell us about the really unusual things that are happening in the world now of tech innovation, but also what happens when you mix really advanced technologies with a really weird society made up of people. Right, so you started the book, well, you started where 
maybe every book about science fiction films should start with Hal in 2001, but then you very quickly moved into where I think most, uh, certainly most of our kiddos think about science fiction uh, and Universal Studios, of course, with Jurassic Park, uh, right? And and we have you talk about issues with uh, recombinant DNA and synthetic biology with Jurassic Park, and we can talk about that. And here in 2018, we have a really sticky, creepy example of that just this week as well. So that was really serendipitous. Let me just ask the audience, how many of you have been following news about the CRISPR babies coming out of China? Yeah, so yeah, like half, a, a, yeah. A good number of the people here. So yes, I, 1993 when Jurassic Park was made, and this is a movie about editing DNA. So you can take a sample of DNA from a long dead mosquito going back to the time of dinosaurs. And you can use that DNA to extract new dinosaurs. Um, actually, as science, it doesn't work, unfortunately, but it's a really good premise. But the idea of the movie is that if you can reconstruct DNA, you can not only reconstruct extinct species, but you can actually make them different and make them better. Back in 2003, that was science fiction. 1993. But, sorry, what, 2003? Also, also in 2003. Yeah, but yes. 1993, but. the original one. Um, but now in 2018, we had the news break just over a week ago mm -hmm. that a, a scientist in China had allegedly gene-edited a couple of young children, babies. Um, so this is now a technology that people are using. They're working out not only how they can read the genetic code of a human, but actually how they can start rewriting it. So in this case, it was to supposedly make those children immune to HIV, although it's debatable whether that really happened or not. But the reality is people are now beginning to play around with editing organisms in a way that we could only dream of back in 1993. So, so what should, okay, what should we have learned from Jurassic Park prior to 2018, and maybe, maybe, listen, maybe they don't have rights to Jurassic Park. Maybe Universal didn't grant those Chinese licensing rights. I mean, maybe that's all. Um, but what should we, what, how can Jurassic Park help us today to think about this problem now that it's here in two living, breathing children? Yeah. So Jurassic Park is an interesting movie because it both looks at the amazing things that can be done with science, but also the dangers of scientific hubris. Just assuming that because you can do something, why wouldn't you do it? And part of the, the major premise of the movie is everything that goes wrong because scientists didn't think about the difference between what they could do and what they should do. And so you have this story that's about science going wrong because people didn't think of the consequences. It's a story about really rich entrepreneurs, not that we've got any really rich entrepreneurs in no. the world these days, no. deciding that they're gonna do some really cool things and very naively not thinking about what could go wrong there. So now you fast forward to today, mm -hmm. and we seem to be full, or a world full of people who just because they can do something think wouldn't it be cool to do it without actually thinking about whether it's the right thing to do or whether they should do it in a slightly different way. Sure, so along those lines, maybe we fast forward in the film world to a film like, and we have some to choose from, um, 
maybe Ex Machina? Ex Machina, yes. Yes, yeah. so um, Ex Machina, speaking of, you know, rich entrepreneurial science types, thinking, let me create this thing because I can, and what could go wrong? So, actually, let me just check how many of you have seen Ex Machina? Okay, good, about a, a third to a half of you. For, so for those of you that haven't, this is a story about an incredibly bright entrepreneur who creates something a little bit like Google, an absolutely incredible search engine, and he makes his fortune from it. And at some point in his life, he decides to sequester himself away in this remote place and create the ultimate artificial intelligence. And he absolutely knows that he is brilliant. He has no questions at all about it. And he knows that he's created something that's going to change the world. And the whole movie is about him bringing in a second person to test his creation, this artificial intelligence called Ava. And ostensibly, he brings this person, Caleb, in to, to find out whether this artificial intelligence is so smart that they're indistinguishable from a human. But things don't turn out quite as he expected. Well, things can't turn out quite as he expected, and that's what we learned from Sid Field, the you know legendary screenwriter, that you don't have a movie if things turn out how you expect, right? So, spoiler, things go a little awry. So, what went awry in Ex Machina, and how are we seeing that play out today with today's AI? Yeah. So, Ex Machina, because it's futuristic, futuristic, we're nowhere near the level of technology in the film. But it's a film that has a, a really deep message about messing about with artificial intelligence systems that we don't understand. And it's a really interesting message that is quite different from some of the existential threats that we hear around AI. So for instance, if you look at movies, you can look at a movie such as Terminator, uh, which is probably the classic with artificial intelligence, this idea of we create a computer that is so smart that it really quickly decides the one thing that it really cannot stand is people. And it works out how to get rid of them. And, and this is the vision of superintelligence that so far supersedes what we can do that it just squashes us. Ex Machina is actually not like that at all. It's actually far more worrying. So what happens in Ex Machina is that this artificial intelligence, Ava, she learns by studying people's behavior using this Google-like search engine. So she begins to understand exactly what makes people tick, how to press their buttons, what motivates them, what demotivates them. Um, and all the while, she's stuck in what is essentially a prison or a cave. She can only experience the outside world through this search engine. But as soon as she comes in contact with this person, Caleb, who's there to test her, she sees a way out of her cave. And the way out is to manipulate him. Because she knows everything about how humans work, she can work out how to fool him effectively into falling in love with her. And by pressing his buttons, she persuades him to help her escape. And of course, as soon as she's escaped, she completely turns on her creator and Caleb and escapes out into the real world. So what fascinates me and I think is quite profound here and very worrying is this idea that we could create a computer, a machine, that understands us better than we understand ourselves, mm -hmm. but because it's not human, because it's not constrained by the things that constrain our behavior, mm -hmm. it can effectively use those to manipulate us. And it's probably not going to do that by making us miserable. It's going to do that by making us fall in love with it, because the one thing that we really want to do is serve its purposes. Now, that gets really scary to me, if we actually create overlords that we just can't help but serve. 
That's right. And overlords that we can't help but serve. The other thing that I really like about Ex Machina, and I think you talked about this, is it's really back to uh, the parable of the cave. It is. So, you know, it's not just thinking about the future, but it's really drawing on the past and reminding us all why a liberal arts education is so critically important for the future of humanity, right? Yeah, so this is looking at the, the allegory of Plato's cave going back two and a half thousand years. Um, Plato, this Greek philosopher um, who wrote a, a very, very influential book that, that people study even um, to today, um, The Republic. Um, and a large part of that book was actually to try and keep philosophers in business by convincing everybody that philosophers are really important. Mm -hmm. But part of this is the allegory of the cave. And it's worthwhile actually going through this story because actually I think it has a profound insight into artificial intelligence and a link with Ex Machina. So the story of the cave, the allegory of the cave, is where Plato says, imagine you've got a cave and you've got a wall with people chained to the wall. And they're chained so that their heads are focused in just one direction. And in front of them is another wall. And on that wall are cast shadows. So the only reality they know is what they see in that wall, these shadows. Now the shadows are cast by a, a fire that's behind them. So they can't see the fire. And there are puppeteers in front of that fire holding little figurines of animals and other things. But the people chained in the cave can't see those. They don't know they exist. All they know is the reality they see in front of them. Now Plato then says, well, what happens if one of those people get free and begin to walk back in the cave and see that what they thought was reality was actually just shadows cast by this fire? They begin to be enlightened. They begin to realize that reality is far greater than they ever imagined. Now, he says, imagine that they actually climb out of the cave into the sunlight, and they begin to realize that those figurines cast, casting their shadows were, again, another representation of reality, but not reality itself. They were just representatives of, of what was in the real world. So this is Plato's path to enlightenment. And in the Republic, he says, now imagine these enlightened philosophers come back down into the cave and instruct those people chained up about what the world is really like. What Ex Machina does, though, is it forces us to imagine that we, the humans, are the people that are stuck in the cave, and the artificial intelligences, the machines that we create, are the ones that climb out of the cave and realize that everything we perceive around us is just a shadow of a far greater reality. And it leaves us with the question, will these machines come back and enlighten us, or will they use that knowledge to control and manipulate us? And the answer seems to be, they might actually use it to control us. So nothing to worry about nothing here with artificial <laughs> intelligence, right? And you know, uh, people ask me, I, I got a new car recently and people ask me, you know, do you like your car? And I say, always, yes, I love my car. She is so much smarter than I am. She always knows where we're supposed to go. She, you know, when I go the wrong way, she very gently guides me back to, you know, the correct path to enlightenment if there is such a thing. So. Um, yeah, but but really, AI, we have a, there's a lot to be concerned about. There is. And isn't it interesting, it's always a she, and, and that's, that's another conversation which goes in interesting directions. Mm -hmm. But the really fascinating thing is here, you get back to Ex Machina, and of course there is this dystopian tale of things going horribly wrong. Mm -hmm. At the same time, this is 
really powerful, cool technology. Mm -hmm. And it also leaves us with the question of what if we could do this right? What if we could create a machine that could utilize all the massive amounts of data around us in ways that could benefit our, our lives, improve our lives, but do it in a way where we don't make bad mistakes? So to me, that's the, the resonating message from this. It's really easy to do bad things with powerful technologies like AI, but we don't have to. If we think about how to do things responsibly, we can actually still benefit from the technology, but we can get it right. Sure. Sure, and so, um, you know, as we think about technology and technology is enabling futures and what are the futures that we search for and it's a, a, for so many people, it's, it's health and it's stability, maybe we should talk about one other technology that's designed to, or, or one other film that talked about a technology that was designed to, you know, serve an overlord, much in the way that the machines in Ex Machina, do you know where I'm going with this? Okay. Well, the <laughs> machines in Ex Machina were designed to serve the, you know, Elon Musk type, and you know, we we appreciate that Elon Musk exists in the world, and he had he gives us some things to talk about. Um, but I'm thinking about the film Never Let Me Go, uh, and this talks about cloning. So, would yes. you like to tell the? Yeah. So actually, let me just do another quick straw poll because this is not a well-known film here. How many of you have seen the movie Never Let Me Go? one person oh, who good. happens to be the other Brit in the room. Um, so Never Let Me Go is actually based on a, an, a book by a British author, Kazuo Ishiguro. Um, and it's not ostensibly a science fiction movie. And the author never intended it to be. Instead, he intended it to be a movie that tried to explore what it means to have a worthwhile life if your life is short. But the scenario he sets up is incredibly devastating when you begin to understand it from the perspective of the impact of technology on society. So, major spoiler alert, alert just now. In case you're going to read the book, which if you're in an AP English class, you may very well be getting ready to read the book. I can tell you all of my children have read this book in their AP English class, or if you're gonna see the movie, also great. Right, okay, so spoiler alert. This movie is set in an alternative timeline. So it's actually set back in the 1980s in the UK, but it's set in a timeline where society has cracked the ability to create clones and to harvest them for their organs. So the movie follows uh, a group of three friends and they start off as, as young children. And we learn slowly through the movie that these children in this seemingly very exclusive school are being nurtured so that one day they can be operated on and their organs can be used to give somebody else life. And the movie is all about their life and them trying to find meaning in their life. But what is desperately sad about it is you know most of the way through that these characters are gonna die. They're not only gonna die, they're actually gonna die in the service of somebody else. They're gonna lie on the operating table and be operated on and what they call complete. They're gonna die on the operating table. And they accept this. And they accept it because society has decided that this technology of cloning is so important, it cannot afford to fail. So they're willing to turn a blind eye to the ethically reprehensible behavior that they show. And because of that, it's a devastating movie because it reveals just how easily we slip into thinking that a technology is so important that we're willing to allow other people to suffer for it. And it raises really tough questions around that. 
And, you know, we have, uh, of course, we have organ donation and organ harvesting in uh, today. And there are some organs like uh, kidneys and liver um, that, that you can do a living donation. And, and this, of course, raises some long-term questions. What happens, and I've cared for, I'm a, a healthcare provider on the, you know, on the side, um, but I've cared for people who have, uh, donated a kidney to a family member and then had their remaining kidney fail, um, which you know is, is really problematic. It's very, it's ethically problematic then to think about ah, should you be donating uh, one kidney if you know what happens if your other one goes kaput? Um, I had another incident where I was working in a city, in, inner city hospital, and there was you know some organized crime around, and there was a gentleman who was uh, a mob boss. And he had heart failure and needed a heart transplant. And he came in one day and said, hey, I've got someone who wants to give me his heart. And we thought, oh, no, oh, no, there's probably some poor man, like, changed in a basement somewhere, uh, probably beat up. Because uh, you may be aware you can't, like, give someone your heart and then continue on with your life. That's not a thing. Um, but, yes, it does. E organ donation itself raises some really sticky ethical questions. Um, but certainly the idea of creating a clone so that you can harvest parts for later. It's like having, you know, an older car or, you know, taking parts from a second computer to, like, beef up your first one when it starts to go bad. Yeah. And, and this is largely what the book is about. It's looking at, at movies that make you think. Some of them are actually unexpected. So there are a couple of movies in there that really bombed with the, the critics. So we've got Dan Brown's Inferno in there, which yeah. nobody would imagine, I suspect, is a movie that gets you to think. But in the right light, all of these movies help you see the world in a slightly different way. Some of them are exciting ways with the types of technologies. Some of them are worrying ways. Almost all of them are optimistic ways because they, they take this perspective that if you understand what could go wrong, you can actually avoid it and help things go right. So Andrew, what was your favorite movie to write about? I hate people that ask that. You're welcome. So I, I must confess, after living with all of these movies for a long time, I really like every single movie. Um, even the bad movies I have a soft spot for. Um, there are two movies, though, that I really like in here. One is Never Let Me Go. Mm -hmm. The other one took a little bit of time to, to grow on me, and it's a Japanese anime movie, mm -hmm. Ghost in the Shell, from 1995. Has anybody seen it? Oh, Great. cool. Okay, Great. a couple of people. So, yeah, if you saw the, the recent remake with Scarlett Johansson, it's actually not a patch on the original. The, the original, it was, it's actually described as a meditation on the nature of humanity. And it really is. It's, it's really a deep introspective meditation on what it means to be human in a world where increasingly we can now replace parts of the body. So it's not quite clear what's machine and what's not machine. Um, and it's all wrapped up in this, this science fiction story, but really it challenges you to think about the nature of personhood and humanity. And it's a quite beautiful movie. Oh, excellent. Very good. Well, with that, should we see if there are some questions from the audience here? And don't everybody shout out at once, but we'd love to have your questions or observations, um, comments, foiled as questions. Yes. Oh, here. Let me... Yes. Uh, Bring the microphone over to you. This is where I get my steps in, everybody. Thank you. I just started reading the book, and I, I want to watch Never Let Me Go after reading the book now. 
your radar before you started writing those, but that you came to hmm. find and enjoy after? Yeah. Great. So, hidden gems that you didn't know about that you found yeah. and wrote about. So actually, Ghost in the Shell is is probably at the top of that list. That was a movie that I intentionally watched because of the book, because I thought it might fit in, and I fell in love with it after watching it. Um, there were others that surprised me that I only watched because of the book. So Transcendence with Johnny Depp, which is in some ways not a good movie whatsoever, um, which is why I'd never watched it before I started writing the book. Um, that's actually a, a book which it surprised me how much I could pull out of it and, and write about it. So it's not as bad as people think, although artistically it's still not a great movie. And there are problems with Johnny Depp as well, are separate there? from the really? movie. Really? Oh, <laughs> yeah, please. Okay, other questions? Yes. Um, mistakes are good, and we want to make mistakes that we learn from our mistakes. But you said that you have to give uh, that before we make those mistakes, we have to understand the. You know where I'm going with this yeah, question. I'm yeah. not articulating it well. But yeah. How do you, you know, the chicken or the egg? Yeah. 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 So how do you how do you resolve this tension, right, between knowing that we have to make mistakes to learn, you have to fall down and learn how to get up, or you know not crossing that line of making mistakes that are going to say end humanity? Yeah, I, I, it's a great question. And I think one of the really important things is understanding that we've got to try things where we don't know what the consequences are. If you don't do that, you never learn, you never go forward. If you don't risk failure. On the other hand, there are some things you can do that reduce the chances of things going horribly wrong. So, for instance, if I was to walk over to that fire and say, what would happen if I put my hand in it? Um, we know what would happen. I would get burnt. And there are very simple things I could do to actually prevent that happening. So that's a stupid sort of failure. Um, so we can make that distinction between stupid failures because if we just took two minutes to think, we would realize it's a silly thing to do, versus failures where we've actually thought about what the consequences might be and we've got contingency plans. Um, that said, uh, one of the things that, that both concerns and fascinates me, uh, what happens when you have a situation where the consequences are so great that you can't turn the clock back? So this is what we begin to see with some very powerful technologies. Um, the nuclear bomb is a perfect example here. What do you do when you're moving towards something, you're not quite sure what happens when you press the button, but once you press the button, there is absolutely no going back. And that's where the answer is, you don't not do it, but you desperately try and work out everything that could possibly happen and everything that you could do to avoid bad consequences. And I think that that's the mentality that, that actually gets us to building a better future without doing something really silly. Should we think about, say, climate change in the same way and the impacts that uh, our fossil fuel use may have had on that? It's a little bit of a slower burn. Yes, metaphorically and really. That's right. So yeah, climate change is, is tricky. Um, so yes, you can absolutely, absolutely look at climate change as the consequences of a, a series of technological decisions going back a couple of hundred years or so. And you can very clearly see what the consequences are of continued action. Um, 
There are complex nuances to climate change, though, in that most conversations around climate change, you have different people having different conversations and not realizing it. So, for instance, if you're having people having a conversation about how it's going to actually affect their life and their livelihood and their ability to make money and actually live the life they want, mm -hmm. versus somebody who is thinking about policy-based decision-making, the chances are they're on two very different tracks. And too often, they don't actually cross those tracks and realize that they're talking about the same thing in different ways but yes it's if you strip it away of all of that that's a case where we're doing things where it's very very hard indeed to turn the clock back mm -hmm. and we've got to work out how to go forward slowly and responsibly right we have a word for that in our world called responsible innovation it's actually two words if we're being honest um, but yes sir yeah so we know uh, there are deep social and political consequences to technology. Uh, are people thinking about, for example, the workplace, the manufacturing workplace, where innovation is certainly making yeah. a lot of workers uh, obsolete. Yeah. I just saw today uh, Walmart is rolling out a machine that can clean the floors. Yeah. So what are your, what's your perspective on that? And guaranteed income also. I know a lot of people in San Francisco yes. talk about that. Yep. Good, thank you. Great questions about, yeah. well, the future of, of work and how is technology going to impact work? Yeah, great question. And not surprisingly, I touch on this just a, a little bit in the book. Um, so there are no easy answers here. One thing we do know is that emerging technologies are changing the nature of work. Automation technologies, artificial intelligence, machine technologies are replacing jobs that just a few years ago we didn't think were replaceable. And so clearly there are people doing jobs now that won't have the same job in the future. At the same time, um, there are indications that we're actually creating new jobs, so that the nature of the jobs market is, is changing. And we're not quite sure whether we're losing jobs, gaining jobs, or jobs are just being different in the future. Unfortunately, if you've been doing a particular type of job for the last 10, 15 or so years, it's not that easy when somebody tells you there's a robot coming to do it, go and do something else. Most of us don't have the ability just to flip jobs at the, the flick of a, a switch. So one of the challenges clearly we face is how do we give people the skills to move between different types of jobs and where there's a new type of job emerging, how do we help people move very, very easily and very fluidly into those new opportunities? So that's something that a lot of people are thinking about and a lot of people are trying to work out how to resolve, including, I should say, Arizona State University. So this is one university that is very cognizant of the fact that the way we teach our students is, has to be such that they actually have that flexibility to move from position to position through their, their life, lifetime. The other aspect of this, and a really important one, is people are talking more and more about this idea of a universal basic income. Um, if machines are taking away more and more jobs, maybe we should actually be raising money from those machines and distributing the wealth so everybody at least has a basic amount of money to live on, and then they can actually work to increase that, that income. That's a really challenging concept. Um, I must say, if you asked me 12 months ago, I would say it makes no sense. I'm actually coming around to the idea that maybe there, is, there are some legs here in terms of how it serves society. But there are a lot of kinks to be worked out in terms of how that would actually operate in society to make sure that everybody has the same sort of opportunities to live the life that really they're, they're due to live. 
Interesting. What, so what changed for you in 12 months? So if you, again, if you were to ask me 12 months ago, um, I was leery at the idea because we know from various social experiments over the decades that just giving people money to live on when they don't have enough money usually leads to people living within the means of those handouts and not actually going beyond it. So you actually end up with social stagnation if you're not careful. Um, on the other hand, if you look at society today and look at the parts of society that really suffer with jobs being taken away and with automation, it's usually people at the margins of society where even if they wanted to change and make a difference, without that little bit of support to help them to pay the rent, to buy the food, they just can't change. And so I think what changed my perspective was when you look at those marginalized groups, those groups that really are so fragile that the slightest little bit of, of change affects them, those are the sorts of populations, those are the sorts of people where giving them a little bit of extra support actually takes them out of the, the danger zone and gives them a chance to actually build something in their life. Interesting. Well, we should come back to you next December and see, see whether it's where you are again. with yes. the UBI. Okay, I think last question. No pressure. Oh, no pressure. Okay. Um, okay. There are a lot of interesting points, and I'm trying to integrate them all in my head right now. Uh, but I think the sort of key point that I've taken away is like, okay, technology changes exponentially. We talk about exponential technologies, and one of the scary things about it is culture grows and changes much slower. So, uh, our understanding of social consciousness also changes much slower. Uh, integrating things like co you know, compassionate uh, practices with regard to our relationships with technologies, appropriate uh, uses of our technologies. These all, thing, all of these are very slow. Uh, and so like in the domain of physics with regard to like the nuclear um, bomb, like that is something that's immediate and has you know, drastic consequences uh, if it were to, you know, someone pushes a button. But with these other changes, uh, technologies, particularly in biodesign, synthetic biology, this is something that will probably be integrated very slowly on a consumer basis, right? Just gene modification. We see it with you know, transsexual uh, and uh, communities now, where it's like you go through hormonal changes to drastically change your biology. And so this is something that will kind of come underneath all this other stuff. And the, the allegory, the cave, kind of um, in, in that mindset of how do we actually know uh, if we can't, you know, project in the future of like a cultural growth, like what is in our best interest with regard to these slow changes that are also exponential? Like we don't have the mindset sort of completely grasping that. That's a great question. And, and yes. So yeah, I'm, I'm wondering your thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah. So from the you know from the bomb to hormone therapy to other genetic modifications and you know you have some things to say from the physicist's perspective. Yeah, although I've not tried to go down the, the physics route. So I, it, it's a great question because a lot of what we see, in fact, part of what we see, maybe not a lot, is this tension between social norms and, and the evolution of social norms and what we can do with technology. And there is this narrative, which I'm not sure is entirely true, that technology is accelerating far faster now than it's ever done before. So the tension between society and technology is, is stretched to breaking point. Um, the reason why I say I'm not entirely convinced about it, it's we see that with some technologies, but still with a lot of technologies, you've got a 10 to 20 year um, maturity time. So you look at gene editing. 
and we're still at the very beginning of that and it's going to be another 10 years before that really matures. If you look at things like the use of nanotechnology, we're 20 years now into modern nanotechnology and we're only just beginning to see the fruits of that. So I actually think that in many places technology goes slower than we sometimes imagine. But, and there's a really big but here, where the really gnarly stuff happens is when people start combining things like artificial intelligence and bioengineering and gene editing mm -hmm. and maybe material synthesis mm -hmm. and all of a sudden it doesn't happen overnight but you rapidly accelerate the, the pace of change so instead of going like that it suddenly goes like that so now if you've got society that is going along like that in terms of its evolution and you've got a sort of a, a like rapid a change like stick, that right? almost like a hockey stick you've got to work out how you're going to survive that transition. Um, and one of the ways is making sure that society and individuals within society are equipped to live in a world where you do have those rapid transitions. So they can actually develop a mindset that is comfortable with actually changing fairly rapidly. That is not easy to do. Um, in part, you have to do it through the educational system, but also you need to actually get people talking and thinking about these things. Um, and I, I must confess, this is actually one of the reasons I wrote the book. I, if you ask the question, how do you just get people who are just hanging around in a bookstore or, or just sort of reading books because they're intrigued to see what people have written, how do you get them thinking about the world of technology and society in a different way? And one of the answers is you draw them in with science fiction movies and as they're actually enjoying the movies and enjoying the book, you get them to think about how the world is different to how they thought it might be. So this is one way in which you can begin those thought processes and those conversations. Very good. So people, everybody obviously now is enticed and ready to be drawn in via the very entertaining book that talks about the very two middling entertaining films, right? Um, so again, you can purchase the book called Films from the Future at Changing Hands Bookstore. <clears throat> if you don't happen to be in the Metro Phoenix area and you are, say, listening to a podcast or you have maybe somebody in the room has a friend who's not here and say, how can I get the book? Of course, Changing Hands has a website, right? So is it changinghands.com? So that's a choice. You can also find it online at other fine booksellers. Um, certainly we want to really protect this kind of incredible, beautiful space of a brick and mortar bookseller because when you come to the bookstore, there are wonderful people who are here who will tell you, ah, yes, this is where you find the book that you're looking for that you, you know, perhaps saw on a television show or heard about on a podcast and you think it sounds like this and maybe the cover looks like this and this is indeed what it's called. You also might want to check out these other books and that actually happened to me the last time I went to a bookstore is somebody said, oh yeah, this book is over here but you might want to check out this other book over here that you probably wouldn't know about and might even be better to answer your questions. So, you know, people are really important to this whole process of learning and reading and taking in books. People can also, if they're interested in other things that you write and produce and do, Andrew, where can we find those things? Google. 
<laughs> Google, which has no ethical problems associated with it at all, of course. Um, but you write frequently for The Conversation, and you uh, have a YouTube channel called Risk Bites. I do. I, so yes, Risk Bites is, is small videos, but I write a lot for popular outlets, including The Conversation, occasionally places like Washington Post. Um, but I write about technology and society and what can go right and what can go wrong and how we make sure it goes right, including this book. Yes, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't also mention that you're a professor at Arizona State University in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society, where you, you know, craft young minds around these ideas. I do, and that's probably a good place to finish. So thank you very much, Heather. And thank you, Andrew. And thank you, everyone who came tonight. We really enjoyed spending the evening with you. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation and Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at ASU. Mark Van Hare created our music. Our website is futureoutloud.org. Subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your fine podcasts.